following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I appreciate you guys uh, braving the cold to make it out here. Uh, Just for the record, I am not a meteorologist anymore, so you have to blame somebody else for that. Praise the Lord. Well, this, uh, like Sam said, this is probably my fourth or fifth time preaching. This is my second time in just as many months. Um, Like I mentioned last time, I am newly married. I got married back in June, and I think one of the fears that uh, you come into marriage with is that once you get married, after that, everybody starts asking, so when are you going to have kids? Luckily, and thank you guys for this, we haven't been asked that too many times, so we don't have kids yet, but I am a child of somebody, and one of the kind of worries I have about becoming a father is that I know what I was like as a kid. You know what I mean? Like, I know my dad, and I know exactly what he likes, what he doesn't like, and a lot of times in my life I've used that to my advantage. Like, for example, one of the things my dad does not like is traffic and people who act like they don't know how to drive. Nothing drives over. I mean, that's most of us, but man, it, it gets to him. It's kind of funny to watch, but I know that something that he loves is ice cream. You want to talk about using something to your advantage? <laughs> I've used that to my advantage plenty of times, because you know what happens when my dad gets ice cream? I get ice cream. Hey, Dad, you want some ice cream? I've done this a lot every time he comes to visit with Whitey's. We've had a lot of Whitey's every time he comes up here. So in these verses that that we're about to dive into that Carrie just read for us, Jesus is showing us how we relate to God, our Heavenly Father, and what it looks like for us to go to Him in prayer for our needs. So I understand my earthly father. I understand what makes him tick, So I don't have any embarrassment about asking him for ice cream because I know he loves it, and I know that I'm going to get ice cream as well. It's a good thing. Before we go any further, I want to pause there, and I want to ask a couple of questions. How do you view God? Is he some unreachable celestial being that's just far out there in the sky, someone who kind of has his mind made up already, and you just have to do everything perfectly in order to earn his favor and make him happy? Or is he like your buddy, just someone you casually call up every now and then and just chat with? And what does your prayer life look like in response to that? Are you scared to ask for anything, or are you just expecting anything you ask for? Do you pray at all? And if so, are you doing it out of habit, or do you find joy in it? 
And then if not, why? Because in this passage, Jesus, he's going to tell us what the true purpose and the joy of prayer is. Prayer that comes from knowing, understanding, and believing what it means to be in relationship with God. Jesus wants to take our preconceptions that we come into prayer with, and he wants to turn them on their head. And he wants to show us that God truly is for our favor and for our good. He's showing us that he's not unreachable, but he's also not a cosmic piggy bank. He wants us to experience that robust relationship with God that opens up the floodgates to be able to flourish in life on earth. So, in that vein of these, these words, let us pray before we get started here. God, I just uh, I praise you so much for just this super encouraging passage that uh, you do love us and you have our good and uh, in mind and you have your glory in mind and all you do and we get to be a part of that we get to rejoice in that so lord i pray this morning that your spirit would be here we're asking that uh, you would be moving in our hearts lord i pray you'd help me to say the things that um, you'd like me to say and just uh, filter out the things that i shouldn't say and may it all be for your glory and our ultimate good in jesus name amen all right so we're continuing our sermon series through the sermon on the mount we've been here for a few months now we're in the last leg of this series, and in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been walking through this theme of lesser to greater. So he's showing us this lesser way of living, lesser way of righteousness that we come to the table with, and he's saying, hey guys, there's something better. There's something greater. If you haven't heard what's going on uh, the last several months, you can go back and listen to it. But this week, we're following that same pattern. It's this time, Jesus is showing us that, that the lesser view of what prayer is that we bring to the table and our lesser view of God at that. There's something greater. There's a greater way of living. You see, prayer is God's gift to man to talk with him, to wrestle with him, and to commune with him anytime that you want to. And it's also what it is to, it takes what it is to receive what it's like to become more Christ-like and grow deeper in his grace. This is, this is what prayer is. It's a beautiful thing, and it's not the first time that Jesus talked about it, even in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the second time, the first time in Matthew 6, Jesus introduced the Lord's Prayer, and he talked about how to pray. He talked about the heart that's behind false prayer, and if you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it, because it's really good. But today, we're moving forward, and Jesus is going to show us why. Why we should pray, and where our heart is when we don't pray, or when we're praying just flippantly. Prayer is fundamental to how we walk out our lives as kingdom people, and we relate to God the Father. The great reformer Martin Luther, he said, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Let's be honest, I don't know about you guys, but I struggle with three minutes sometimes, (laughs) let alone three hours. But that is the view that Jesus wants us to have of prayer. Just like you're going to struggle in your role as a child to communicate with your earth, uh, to, to be a child who doesn't communicate with your earthly parents, you're going to struggle in your role as a child of God without talking and communing with your Heavenly Father. Jesus wants us to have a high view of prayer. This isn't just something that, that we use to gain rewards, to gain favor, but this is a privilege, and it's something that we get to enjoy with God, the fact that Christ's sacrifice meant we now get to commune with him. This is probably one of the most encouraging passages of all the New Testament, which is uh, kind of funny considering last week we were talking about dogs and pigs. 
But these, these words, these are encouraging. So if you guys want to open up your Bibles to Matthew 7 and join me there, we're going to read the first two verses. It says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. <clears throat> Jesus in these first two verses, it's pretty simple. He says, all you have to do is ask, seek, and knock, and you will find what it is that you need. That's it. It's that simple. It's a straightforward invitation to seek God to meet your needs with confidence. We get the joy of relating to God not as a mere omnipotent deity, but as a good and caring Father. This is actually the first time that Jesus uses the word Abba. It was never used in the Old Testament, so the people here were probably taken aback by him using such a familial term to talk about God the Father, but that's because it is an intimate and personal relationship that we get to have with him. And notice that in these verses, the emphasis is not on the skill or the persistence of the seeker, but it's on the character and the kindness of God. God is good, so therefore he gives good things. Hello. A good God does not give what is bad for us. That's against his character. That's not who he is. And in order for this to make sense a little more to us, Jesus compares the character and kindness of God to that of our earthly fathers. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. It says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus understands that even an average parent wouldn't give their kids something useless like a stone or something harmful like a snake when they're asking for food. And if you would do that, we need to talk afterwards. <laughs> Jesus knows and he understands that we are sinful creatures. Guys, we constantly want what is bad for us. We're constantly doing things that are bad for us, but even we understand not to give children things that are bad for them. I don't have kids, like I mentioned at the beginning of this, but I do have the joy of helping out in kids' ministry on Sunday mornings, and uh, if you're looking for a sign of how you should volunteer, this is your sign. Sign up for kids' ministry. We need the help. But I will admit, when I first started a few years ago, it was very begrudgingly that I joined. But since then, it has become a joy to get to serve these kids about once a month. And we have a, a structure that we try to follow throughout every class because it's good. Kids need structure. One of those things we do is snack time. And uh, really, that's just to get them to sit down and be quiet for a minute. <laughs> Let's be honest. But something that has become a lot more common since I started even three years ago is gluten intolerance. And some of these kids, they have to eat gluten-free, but they love animal crackers. But animal crackers have gluten in them, for, so for some of these kids, that would be a very bad thing. So as we're doing snack time, I have to remind myself over and over, okay, who can have gluten, who cannot have gluten, because I don't want to give gluten to a kid who can't have it. That would hurt them, and they're, they're not even my kids. And I still labor over which ones can have it and which ones can't. I may not know what's good for myself most of the time, like asking my dad for whiteies every time he comes and visits, but at least I know you don't give gluten to a kid who can't have it. 
So Jesus is saying that if we are sinful creatures who want and crave things that are so bad for us and we still know how to give a good gift, how much more will God the Father, who is perfect and holy, give us what is good for us? Jesus is reorienting how we see and relate to God as something far greater than that lesser view that we are bringing to the table. Now, we do need a little caveat here because this is not an absolute and universal promise that you'll never suffer. But what it is doing is casting a hopeful vision that forms our understanding of God's character. He wants to give you good things. He wants you to be the best version of human that you can be. And he wants you to flourish. And your role in that is simple. Ask, seek, and knock. At least it seems simple enough. But just like we don't really know what's good for us most days, we bring a lot of baggage with us to prayer. So those three words can be very hard things to do. Jesus is telling us to ask, seek, and knock, knowing full well that there's usually about three types of objections wrapped up in each one of those words. There's an emotional objection. Usually, we have felt our own reality different to the personal and intimate God that Jesus is describing here. The second is intellectual. We don't really understand how does this fit in with the narrative of God's story. God giving us things that we ask for, this back and forth. And then experiential. We've either seen or we've been through too much to believe that God is someone who actually gives good gifts. So let's unpack this a little bit. The first thing Jesus says is ask. Ask and it will be given to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Now, in order to ask for something, you have to bring some level of trust that you're going to actually get what it is you're asking for. And this can be a hard emotional barrier for a lot of us to get past because of the things that we bring with us. The things like what we've experienced as kids. So, Think about your parents. Did you live under the fear that you would be punished for even the smallest little thing? Or maybe you wouldn't be punished, but what about parents who held things over your head, like their money or their provision? Were you afraid to ask for something because you were afraid of how they were going to use it against you? Let's say your parents were perfect, although unlikely. What about bosses or coaches? that you've had in the past. You go and you ask for the promotion or you ask to be put in the game only to be told no over and over and over again. I had a lot of grudges with coaches growing up for that reason. Turns out I was just unathletic. <laughs> it's true. What about churches you've been a part of in the past? What about people who claim to be believers but they used it to manipulate those around them? That hurts. And each of us, we come into relationship with God, having related to parents or authority figures in the past in some way that caused us to question every other authority figure we come across, especially God. We have deep-seated attachment issues to those authority figures, so we come to God and we expect his response to be the same. He's either going to tell us no and make us feel stupid for asking, or he's going to say yes, and it comes with some strings attached for you to do some stuff later on for him. But that's not what God's character is. God is the better father and the better mother. He has no sin in him. There are no strings attached with God because it's in his nature to give good gifts to his kids. He knows when to say yes to ice cream and when to say no. 
There's a saying that I've heard a lot around MC that a parent is usually only as happy as their unhappiest child. Now, although the source material is probably a little bit different where a parent's finding their self-worth in that kid, the devotion for the child is still the same. God is infinitely happy within himself, but God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Therefore, if God wants us to glorify him, and that means that we have to delight in him, then God is going to give us the good things that it takes for that to happen. So let's say somehow you manage to overcome the emotional barriers, then we move on to the next problem, intellectual. Jesus says, seek, seek, and you will find. The one who seeks, finds. I think the biggest barrier, intellectually speaking, is that we just can't really comprehend how this back and forth works. How does it work asking for things and getting them, or sometimes it doesn't? How does that fit in with Scripture and the narrative that God has been writing since the beginning of time? I think there's generally two schools of thought when it comes to how we view God. The first is God as an author of a story that we have no control over. I think of Frodo in The Lord of the Rings, and if you haven't seen it, this is a spoiler alert, but you've been living under a rock if you haven't. When he gets to the end of the story, he finally makes it to Mount Doom. He walks to the edge, overlooking the fires below, and he has the ring in his hand, getting ready to throw it in, cast it into the fire and destroy it, and then he turns around and he says, no, I want it. And so the author of the story, J.R.R. Tolkien, had to write in this crazy coincidence where Smeagol attacks Frodo, tries to take a ring, and then they both fall into the fires of Mount Doom. Frodo didn't have any control over that. The author had to write that in so that the redemption would still occur. And so goes our belief about God. It's all already written, so we just play along. We go through the motions, praying and waiting for some kind of sign about what we're supposed to do. And then the other view is God as a master chess player. I was uh, in the chess club in eighth grade. I thought it was so cool. Again, unathletic. (laughs) But we look at God as this master chessman. He's some temperamental entity who sits in the sky, and if we make the right moves, we do the right things, then we just might get the outcomes that we want. We bring our best words, our best phrases, our best appearances, thinking that this is what God wants, thinking that it's how we're going to win the game to earn his favor. Or we bargain. God, if you give me this new house, I promise to pray a little more often, or God, if you do this, then yeah, I'll tell my coworker about you finally. But Jesus is telling us no. That there are some truths in, in both of these things, but neither of them is absolutely what God is like. He's something better. He's God, our Father, and our greatest ally in the story that he's been writing since the beginning. And to understand this, you have to understand the story from Genesis to Revelation, how God has stayed the same. You see, in the beginning, God created Adam in the garden. He created him to commune with him, to be his partner, to cultivate the earth, and to fill it, to name the animals. But in Genesis 3, Adam had a better idea. Adam decided that he could do things on his own, so he rebelled, and he 
broke off that fellowship with God. But that didn't stop God. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, he still continued to pursue his people. And he goes through a series of covenants with different figures of the Old Testament, like Noah and Abraham and David. And each time he makes one of these covenants, knowing full well that these people are not going to keep their end of the bargain. But each time, God still keeps up his end of the bargain all the way up until Jesus. This led to God having to take the form of man so that he could uphold both sides of the bargain. In the final covenant, he fulfilled all of the things throughout the Old Testament that he had been promising his people from the beginning, bringing them back into relationship and fellowship with him through Christ. He's always been our greatest ally and our partner in the story that he's writing. He wants to give us good gifts because those gifts are going to go back directly to glorify him. And nothing shows this more than in God sending Jesus to live the life that we couldn't and die the death that we deserved. He did it for our good and for his glory. It's not some complex equation or a chess game that you have to figure out. It's just who God is. It's part of his story. It's part of his character. He wants you to be an active participant in that. You get the joy of being an active participant, which includes how you pray and how you communicate with God. Now, you overcome emotional barriers. You're saying, okay, I trust that God is good. Now, intellectually, you're saying, all right, he's, he's kind of our ally. He's, he's proved that. So comes the third, and this is usually the largest barrier, and it's experiential. Jesus says, finally, knock, and it will be open to you. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. Now, knocking is probably the most urgent action of the three. You notice they kind of get subsequently more urgent. Asking, you kind of need something. Seeking, you're like, all right, I need it. Let me try to find it. But knocking, you're like, I need it now. Please help me out. Knock on somebody's door. But what happens when you knock on someone's door and they don't answer? Or what about when you're told no? I think, A, you're probably not going to want to knock on that door again because you don't want to get hurt anymore. Or at least you're going to think twice about it next time. I think many of us come to prayer and we read encouraging verses like this and we think that that means that we're going to get whatever we ask for. And we're disappointed when it doesn't happen. But the problem in these words isn't God for telling us no to things that we ask for, but it's why we're even coming to prayer in the first place. One of the things that I hated the most as a teenager was curfew. I think most teenagers would agree with me there. I always had to be home by 11 p.m. And I couldn't possibly fathom or understand what the difference between 11 p.m. and midnight or 1 a.m. or 2 a.m., et cetera, et cetera, was. What's the difference? What does it matter? My motivation is I wanted to hang out with my friends, I wanted to be independent, and I wanted to do whatever I wanted to do. But my dad, who said the curfew, his motivation was he wanted to protect me. And I didn't understand that. He wanted to protect me from bad choices that I would make late at night or drunk drivers out on the road. Many other dangers that can come when you're not safe at home with those who love you. Was my dad a bad person for telling me no when I wanted to stay out later than 11 p.m.? No. He was loving me and protecting me. He is just as good and attentive in telling me no to staying out past 11 as he is in giving me the joy of ice cream. And that's how it is with God. 
He is just as good and attentive in answering prayers as he is when he says no to our prayers. A loving father would not give their kids bad gifts just because those kids can't understand why it's bad for them. There are many things that I've prayed for over the years to which I'm glad the answer was no. Ex-girlfriends, amen, hallelujah. A job back in North Carolina, I wouldn't have met my wife if that happened. I wouldn't have gotten grown deeper in the gospel with you people here. In the wise words of the philosopher Garth Brooks, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. God has used all of the unanswered prayers and all of the no's to reveal more of his character to me. In prayer, we're not trying to overcome God to get what we want, but we're overcoming our own sinful desires to become more like him. And you know what? Even Jesus knows what it's like to be told no to his prayers. On the night before he died in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus went to pray by himself. In Matthew 26, he says, Lord, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. Jesus knew exactly what he was about to go through. He knew what he had to do, and he knew that he was going to die. He plainly asked God, he said, if there's any other way, let it be, Lord. Because he was going to go through literal torture. But don't miss the second part of that prayer. The second part, he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus trusted that God had his best intentions and our best intentions in mind when he sent him to die on the cross for our sins. Guys, even death in this case turned out to be what was good when God said no. So let me ask you this again. First and foremost, are you praying? If not, why aren't you praying? And secondly, if you are praying, what does your time with God look like? We have been talking through the Sermon on the Mount series all the way since the Beatitudes over and over again every week about what human flourishing is, what it looks like, and guys, this is how we get it. God has designed you to flourish and enjoy Him for forever. He isn't abstract, and His plan for flourishing isn't abstract either. You're just not flourishing because you're not asking for it. If you find yourself suffering and grieving, and you're not sure how to bear it, ask God to help you. His peace abounds for you to enjoy, and He wants to give it to you. If you and your spouse can't get on the same page and you feel like you're constantly living in conflict, then seek God in the midst of the struggle. He wants to give you His grace so that you can give it to others. Or if you're caught in unrepentant, habitual sin, make haste right now and knock on God's door. Freedom from the chains of sin is there waiting for you. You no longer have to be your own worst enemy because your greatest ally is God. He's not putting us through the ringer here. He's not making us flounder around and figure it out by ourselves because the fact of the matter is if you never had the need to ask and to seek and to knock, then you would never know the sweet fragrance of grace that Jesus offers. And the beauty is, 
He doesn't just leave you there. You don't punch your ticket to heaven and now you have to figure out the rest on your own. God has given us the Holy Spirit first and foremost to empower us and embolden us to trust Him and to ask for the things that we need. He's given us our community, your MC, the people around you in this room right now to help lift you up and encourage you and point you back to Him. And thirdly, He's given you the privilege to be an active participant in your sanctification. Jesus is your ally, and He's making a way for you to be more like Him. Because Jesus is joyfully interceding, even now, joyfully interceding with for you to the Father, no matter how many times you've screwed up. I don't care if it's been weeks, months, years since you've prayed. Jesus answers those prayers, and he runs back to the Father. He says, it's okay, this one's mine. If you are in Christ Jesus this morning, guys, you were made to flourish. It might not always be pretty. You're gonna trip, gonna mess up along the way. You're gonna ask for way too much ice cream. And you're gonna forget that God is good. And you'll forget what you have access to, but no matter how long it's been, no matter what you go through, Jesus is always there, and God will always give you exactly what you need for life and godliness when you seek him. You have the full assurance now in Christ that you can ask for the help you need. So guys, as we come to the table this morning to partake in the Lord's Supper, this, this is our weekly reminder of the beauty of communing with God. It's called communion for a reason. Because Jesus' body was broken and his blood was spilled, he brought us back into the deep relationship with God that we had so long been without. No more picking ourselves up by our bootstraps. No more running and hiding in shame. We get to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning in full confidence that Christ has done everything necessary on your behalf for true flourishing and godliness. Let's pray. God, we praise you so much for these words. We praise you for the encouragement that you bring that we're not left on our own. We're not left to flounder around and figure it out, but Lord, your grace is sufficient in our weakness. That we can come to you time and time again for what we need, and you're going to give us exactly what's good for us and withholding what is bad for us. And we praise you for this. We praise you for your goodness and the character and the story that you've been writing writing since the beginning of time and how we get to be a participant in that. So Lord, we repent of when we don't pray and we repent of the times where we think we can make it on our own and now we come to the table this morning knowing exactly where to look, exactly where to turn for your help and your good. In Jesus' name, amen.